0: Hey boss fam. Thanks for tuning in. You're about to listen to one of the OG episodes from back when this podcast was called the everything enthusiast. And I identified as a creativity and mindset coach for multi-passionates. I tell you this because I may use the term everything enthusiast a lot and say some other stuff about my offers and motivations that might be different from my new identity, but you get me reinventing ourselves is what we multi-passionates do best. So thanks for being here and enjoy the episode. Hey everybody. Welcome to episode two of the everything enthusiast. Today's episode is called what the fuck is wrong with us? I'm Jenny, your ever determined host here to convince you that just like when you call it quits on a soul sucking relationship, it's not you, it's them. If you are already subscribed to the show, I love your face. And if you're here for the very first time, make sure you hit subscribe because today we're going to debunk the myths that there's anything wrong with people who like to do everything. It's a common misperception that those of us that identify as everything enthusiasts are broken in some way. And I discussed that a little bit in episode one. It's going to come up a gazillion times because it's something that those of us who identify as Renaissance people have to deal with all of the time. Um, Sometimes from our family members and our loved ones who wish that we would just settle down, pick a thing, focus on it, you know, make a stable living at it all that good stuff that people who were programmed to be specialists or people who were inherently designed that way believe is the right way to do things. The advice that we often hear is choose one thing, focus on it and do it so well you become known as the best. And you'll hear that advice from entrepreneurs, motivational speakers all over uh, the internet, you know, in business circles, that kind of thing. So I have a couple of questions for you, my audience, who I think probably identifies as Jackson Jills of all trades. How often have you wished you were one of those people who has always known what they wanted to be when they grow up? If you're like me, you are, you know, mentally waving your hair, hand in the air right now. So follow up question. Are you sure? Are you sure you wish you were that way? You are, right? I mean, life would be, or would have been so much easier, right? Okay. Now, do you agree that it's okay to do one thing and one thing only for the rest of your life? Did any of you mentally drop your hand? Because that's essentially what that piece of business advice is asking us to do. And if you're anything like me, that is like having everyone you love dangling from a cliff and being told you can only choose one of them to save. Or if you're a parent, you can only choose one child to feed. It's basically completely impossible. So society in general and a, you know, sort of cultural business mindset that has become like a prevailing attitude is that everything enthusiasts are perennial students. And as a result of that, we are lazy, immature. We won't buckle down. We don't do the hard work that more serious people do. Basically when the going gets tough, we bounce. I really wanted to be a costume designer and that is what I ended up majoring in in college. And I loved the process of designing. I would do historical research. I would look at designs that inspired me and create like a mood board. I loved picking out swatches of fabric and seeing how they went together. Um, I could spend hours in a, in a fabric store and, and the process was so tantalizing to me. It just lit me up to be involved in that. But then when it came to constructing the garment, that's super technical. Pattern making is, is a, a dying art and, and b hard was probably why it's a dying art. Um I have mad respect for the people that have that skill set. And it wasn't fun for me. The execution of my design was not what I was into. I was into the design aspect of it. And I think that there is a point in the career of a costume designer or a fashion designer where you just have a staff at the ready to execute your drawings on paper but there is a whole slog of years leading up to that where you're expected to not only design the product, but execute it yourself. Um, or at the very least have a pattern that you can give to a seamstress to execute on your behalf. I wasn't into it. It it, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't fun for me. And I think as a result, people might've thought I was lazy. I think I thought I was lazy. Another misconception is that we're indecisive. We get to college and we find it impossible to pick a major. Indecisive is kind of an annoying quality, right? It's like dating someone who will never pick a restaurant, but then never likes what you pick either. Later in life, when people like us get to a point where we think, should I write? Should I travel? Should I make art? Should I start a home business? Everybody looks at us like, what the heck is wrong with you? Just pick something. And I'm here to tell you a fact. If we didn't think we had to choose one thing, 90% of our problems as everything enthusiasts would go away. It's this idea that we follow that conventional wisdom, pick one thing, focus on it, become so, you know, great at it that you can't be ignored. Um, there's another way that you can't be ignored and it's to be uniquely you because your combination of things is going to be unlike anybody else's combination of things. But we're going to talk all about, uh, your superpowers and what makes people like us, especially interesting in the next episode. Um, so moving right along, another thing that the world tends to think about us is that we are just really bad at being normal because normal is specializing. Um, you know, or at again, being a dentist is not necessarily specializing in a particular field of dentistry, but it is picking one thing and sticking at it, sticking to it until you're great at it. So this notion that we aren't normal makes us feel like outsiders, doesn't it? I mean, of course there's, there's a human need to belong. And, you know, when you're not quote unquote normal, you don't necessarily feel like you belong. That can be really debilitating. It can be really frightening. I've heard the advice for years now that when you are making business cards, you should not put all of the things you are on there because no one will hire you if they don't know what you really do. I, for a very long time, had resumes for all of my different careers, and I either explained the gaps if there were any, or I like fudged the dates a little bit so that there weren't really any noticeable gaps. But because I was a private chef and a cooking instructor and a bartender and I'd worked retail, I needed... My resume is to be career specific because I didn't feel like anyone who was hiring me to be a waitress wanted to see all of the years that I had spent, you know, working retail or doing those various other totally unrelated things. But more and more, I'm seeing people pass out business cards that actually have like six or seven things on them. And I think it's really cool that. A few people have just decided to, you know, flip off conventional wisdom and, you know, who made up that rule that you can't put all of your different careers on there? You know, one of the other things that people think about us is that we are financially unstable Um, because obviously the key to being rich, which is the same as being happy, natch, is specializing in school and getting recruited out of college and working your way up to partner and having a hefty 401k. It is decidedly not bartending in the evenings so that by day you can write music or make decorative wreaths and sell them on Etsy. You surely can't make the argument that these two lifestyles are equal financially. Like I 100% understand that the dentist makes more than the bartender. Um, some bartenders make actually quite a bit of money, but still, you know, lawyers and dentists probably make more. But consider the degrees of happiness. One person is spending all of the, their daylight hours engaged in their creative passion. And maybe for the lawyer, that is their passion. But I might argue that a lawyer's hobby might be more of the thing that brings them life satisfaction than the drudgery of going to work every day. I never loved bartending by any stretch of the imagination, but it allowed me to pay my bills and live comfortably while I could pursue the things that really did light me up and bring me life satisfaction. So another thing that people think we are, us everything enthusiasts, is self-indulgent. And this is something that I know All of my creative people out there probably believe a little bit about themselves for pursuing creativity in the first place. Mm -hmm. We're taught that creativity is a luxury and that is evident in any time funding needs to be cut and they're looking at educational institutions, they cut the arts. I took a class in college, um, in art direction, which in case you aren't familiar, combines art and design to evoke like an emotional reaction. It is, it's almost a fancy name for set designer, except it encompasses the entire production. So I had a professor, Professor Ron, it was a really cool class. I was super into it. Um, you know, sets and costumes and mood boarding and all of the inspirations Um, was, you know, it was cool to see how those things sort of came together. But on day one, Professor Ron kind of undermined the significance of this thing he was teaching because he said, never pursue a career in this. You won't make any money. And damned if that wasn't a complete example of like, if you, those who can't do teach, you know, I was so sad because I feel like he wouldn't have been teaching this course if he didn't feel like he was somewhat of an expert on it. So to me, that just read that he'd pursued a career in it and failed at it. And now I was teaching at the collegiate level, which is nothing to like sneeze at at all trust, but don't teach art and tell your students on the first day never to pursue art um i think that's a huge mistake and i think it it crushes dreams before people ever get to like fully even dream them so you know no wonder art is considered frivolous when even the artists amongst us discredit it so let's say you could get past that and you see the value of art in the world, or you're called so strongly to do it that you don't have a choice. I mean, I think of Van Gogh and, in, I think it was the last 75 days of his life. He painted 78 paintings. I mean, that was someone who was like possessed by a creativity demon who would not release him. So let's say that's you, you still might feel like wanting to do a bunch of different things. Like we, everything enthusiasts do makes you spoiled, You want all the things, you want your hands in all of the cookie jars and you will be a bitchy curmudgeon unless you get to have things your way. So not only does society sometimes treat us like we're spoiled, we also might fall victim to that belief ourselves. Another thing people think about us is that we're really stubborn. We'll be back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Dream Job Academy. Does your job bum you out? Do you long to feel excited to spring out of bed in the morning and energized to tackle work you adore? We all deserve to feel like this. Our time on this planet is short. Shouldn't we all spend it doing the thing that makes us forget to eat and pee? But wait, you say, I'm multi-passionate. I have no idea which of my million passions is the right one to make a business out of. That's exactly why I created the Dream Job Academy. Put your million and one passions through my signature Dream Job distiller framework, and you'll get back $1 million idea. Plus, you'll walk away with a 30-day action plan and a foolproof system for creating the next one when it's time to add another passion to your portfolio. If you're ready to love what you do so much that you never work a day in your life, snag the Dream Job Academy self-study course at JennyOConnor.com forward slash dream. Because, I mean, at least I am. (laughs) If a job stops making me happy or leaves me too drained to work on my passion projects, I mean, in the past, now I, I do this and, and it's my love. But, um, even if the job was just boring, I was out of there. And I distinctly remember my mom telling me at one point that I needed to pay my dues. And while I I understand where that advice came from, again, if I was unhappy somewhere or not challenged in some way i you couldn't no amount of money would have made it worth it for me to keep going back to that job and I mean, I worked a lot a lot of service industry jobs I mean they're not always the most like fascinating things to do, but some were definitely better than others, and I'm glad I kept uh looking until I found the ones that were and An upside of that is I got really good at interviewing like I'm pretty good at getting. Jobs. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a result of being stubborn, of not settling for less. I, I just kept moving until something was, there was something about it that, that was enticing enough to, to keep me around. Another thing people think about us is that we are disorganized. Disorganization and clutter are two very different things. I would call my stuff organized chaos. And if this relates to you, even if you're just disorganized, but probably you might relate to the organized chaos thing too. Look at pictures of Pablo Picasso's studio. And I'm sure many other famous painters and artists, um, it would be the same. You'll feel so much better about yourself. He created, you know, mind boggling art in a space that was just like full of to the untrained eye junk. So Anyone who looks at my stuff and sees disorganization isn't seeing me. Um, and probably that's the case with you as well. Another thing people think is that we are commitment phobes. It's such a loaded word, commitment phobe. Commitment phobe is a fuck boy who has a revolving door of women and uses people and never settles down. There are just so many negative uh, connotations attached to this word. So it's gross when society tries to slap that label on us. It isn't that we'll talk about what it is, but it isn't that we can't commit at all. Another thing that people say about us is that we lack work ethic. We're quitters, right? That's what people think. Um, Liken it to when, like if you have, if you're a parent and you have kids and they start an extracurricular activity, say soccer and then they get halfway through the season. They want to quit for whatever reason. They're not very good at it. Um, you know, wh- who knows what causes kids to make those decisions, but we tell them that they can't. We, You know, we we bought your uniform and your shin guards and your cleats and you committed to this. It's character building to put in the hard work for something. And if you always quit when it gets hard, you'll never learn how to accomplish your goals, right? That is absolutely... A teaching point. <laughs> um, so clearly when people look at us who sort of change directions and bounce around and very often don't finish our projects, they think that it's, you know, we don't have that aspect of our character that allows us to work through the hard parts. So where did all of these beliefs come from? Like why is society so hard on Renaissance people and, and You know, Jackson, Jules of all trades. Where did that come from? Barbara Scher in her book, Refuse to Choose, which I talked about last episode and will refer back to a million times, has a theory on this. So when Sputnik, the first satellite into space, was launched, the U.S. went into shock that Russia, who had been devastated during World War II, was able to achieve this milestone first. The space race had started two years prior when they announced that they had this plan to do this, but it escalated and ramped up big time the moment that Sputnik launched. So immediately the US put all of our resources into catching up and surpassing Russian technology and everything else that wasn't science and technology at that point became secondary. So again, look back on how Like, as I said earlier, how easily arts programs get defunded departments of literature and design, unless it's industrial design or engineering design can go fuck themselves. Like they just weren't. Important. Humanities became an irrelevant luxury. And with all of that came a decline in the stature of everything enthusiasts. We went from people that were considered well-rounded and erudite, which is a cool word that means showing great knowledge. We went from that to being silly and irresponsible in people's eyes. And people took this as a self-evident truth you know, it just became so ingrained in society at that particular time that eventually we the everything enthusiasts even fell victim to it ourselves. I mean, if that is how your parents feel, that's going to trickle down to you. You know, you get the message as you're growing up that you will ultimately grow up and you will pick a thing and you will focus on that thing and you will get so good at it that you can't be ignored you're, you're going to feel completely wrong and broken if you deviate from that path. So that I think is a pretty good explanation for how society came to be a specialist society, how it came to view generalists and scanners and polymaths as sort of deviant from what they considered the natural way of being. But I think it's important to look at some other misconceptions or past beliefs that have come to not be the way we thought they were. We used to think dyslexics were stupid and lazy. We used to think left-handed people should be trained to use the right hand. We used to believe witches worshipped the devil and performed blood sacrifice and cursed crops. And then fortunately, over time, we have opened our minds and we have learned to think for ourselves. And maybe we've read some books on history or some modern research on dyslexia. More than likely, we've had family members who were dyslexic or left-handed or witches, and we've come to discover that none of that shit is true. It's it's practically mythology. And I think that that's really what the perception of, of everything enthusiasts is as well. And I think that we are finally figuring that out again. We're refiguring it out because nobody looked down on people like us in the age of enlightenment or the Renaissance. So next week on episode three, we're going to talk all about the amazing superpowers that everything enthusiasts have. There's a lot of them. They're really cool, but I didn't want to talk about it Today, because I didn't want this to be the world's longest episode. But I also didn't want to just peace out now on a sour note by talking about everything that's wrong with us and then refuting none of it. (laughs) We are broken in so many ways. Have a good day. Um, So, before I go, I want to give you guys kind of a reframe. Um, You know, there's so much out there in the world right now about mindset and, you know, positive self-talk. And I think that this reframe is kind of everything. Barbara Sher uses this analogy in her book. She says that bees have a very specific purpose and they go to each flower that they go to and they collect the nectar and then they move on to the next flower. We would never accuse a bee of being a quitter when it leaves a flower We assume when it leaves, it has a compelling reason to leave, right? In fact, if it hung out after it was finished collecting nectar, we would consider it derelict in its duties, right? So people assume that everything enthusiasts have a problem if we don't stay at our job or our task or our interest, as long as other people believe we should stay. And in many cases that's for your entire adult life or until the job is quote unquote finished. But if society doesn't know why you are involved in that project to begin with, they have no way of knowing when you're finished. The nectar that motivates each and every one of us is different. And when you think about it, if when, when the magnet that originally attracted you to a certain thing starts diminishing in power, you've done what you've set out to do. Your purpose for being there is gone. And that's why you lose interest, not because you're flawed or lazy or unable to focus, but because you're finished. And We're going to talk about how to discover what your nectar is, what the rewards are that you seek. And I talked a little bit in the first episode about redefining success. And this is where this comes into play big time in terms of mindset. Success is getting the reward that you came for and then bouncing then. And. Honestly, who the fuck cares if other people think you're finished or not? They're not living your life. They don't deal with the repercussions of your choices. So it doesn't matter. And I hope that we can get to a place where you realize it doesn't matter. And it's sometimes hard when it's your spouse or your mom who you're trying to, to make proud, but ultimately your happiness is about you pursuing your projects, finding your rewards, leaving once you've gotten them going on to the next thing that's going to make you live like a super fulfilled life. So I hope you enjoyed the episode boss fam. And if you ever want to ask me a question and effectively get some laser coaching, send me a message on Instagram at Jenny, the Wordsmith, and I will answer on the air and even shout out your business in a future episode. I know you all have questions about being multi-passionate in business and in life, so please don't be shy. My goal is to help people like you step into the spotlight and make real money from their creative passions. I've created a ton of free resources to help you out with this, and one of these is my procrastination personality quiz, which will teach you why you procrastinate and what action steps you can take to stop it for good. You can find that at JennyOConnor.com forward slash procrastination. Until next time, there are seven days in a week and someday isn't one of them. Now get on out there and do the thing.